Amen. As you're finding your seat, if you would, take your Bibles and let's turn together. We're going to start this morning in Romans chapter 11, in verse 36, as kind of a reference point. We'll return to it at the end also, but we mentioned before, these, the series that we're in right now is not necessarily our traditional, our normal pattern. Our normal pattern is systematic exposition through books of the Bible, which we feel is very important. Uh, but particularly this morning and, and on the, in the few weeks ahead, we're going to be looking uh, more at some subjects together and dealing with them from across a broad variety of scriptures. And so you'll want to, to know that. We'll return to systematic exposition uh, with the Gospel of Matthew beginning in just a few weeks. We're eager about that. As we work through this series, for those of you who aren't yet members at Basswood Church, I want to ask you will, you, will you pray about how the Lord might connect you, might use you in this body or in another body? And would you pray about whether or not you should commit to being a part of what the Lord is doing here? If you are a covenant member, as we work our way through this series, will you seriously commit and, and covenant and, and return uh, to asking the Lord to using this series to bring a unity, a unity of purpose and a renewal of all of our commitment to each other and to what the Lord is doing in our church family. Last week we looked at the reality that we are a church and that we believe membership matters. And this week I want to take a look at two of the key distinctive doctrinal areas that are going to help you understand the beliefs and the practices of Basswood Church. Uh, and I, I've got a lot to get through, so if you've got like an Apple pencil, you might want to turn it up to high. Or if, you, if, you, if you've got, you know, you want to you keep your pencil moving fast today, we're going to cover a lot of ground. But before we get through to it, uh, we want to read from Romans chapter 11, verse 36. And as I read, you remember that this is God's word. It's holy, it's inerrant, and it is sufficient for us. Paul writes in chapter 11, verse 36, For from him and through him... And to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, what, a, what a beautiful summary of what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus we find in this passage. To be convinced that everything about our lives... Everything about our lives is to be lived for the glory of God. It all belongs to him. Everything without exception and without exemption is his. It is all to him. Everything in heaven and on earth, everything is meant to glorify the Lord. And we truly believe that here. That, that is a belief that we hold fast to here, that this is all about him. In fact, that's at the root of our theology and our practice. The reason we do the things that we do has everything to do with our conviction that it all belongs and is about Jesus. A.W. Tozer said, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's true about you. And that's true about any church that you're a part of. What a church believes is of paramount importance. And at Basswood, we, we have concrete beliefs. We have certain beliefs, central doctrines that are core to who we are. And it's important that you understand what those doctrines are. But before we dive straight into those doctrines, I want to give, I'm, I'm one of those guys who likes to give some of the fences around the conversation before we dive into the meat. So I want to give us some guiding principles about 
the way that we understand our doctrine. Not just what the doctrine is, but how we understand doctrine, which I believe matters as well. The beliefs matter enormously, but how we hold those beliefs is important as well. Let me give you four guiding principles that may help you understand the way that we hold our doctrine at Basswood. The first is a, is a concept called theological triage. You may not have heard that before. You may have, but it's sort of like in the same way that a medical unit on a, on a battlefield has to prioritize some wounds over others, even though every injury matters, in the same way, some doctrines are more urgent and closer to the center of the gospel than others are. And so they need to be treated as such. And we don't come up with that concept on our own. We actually look to the Apostle Paul, who said something very much like this in 1 Corinthians, when he said that there were some things that he had taught that were of first importance. In other words, to deviate from these things puts you outside of the family of God. There are beliefs that you can hold that are not just errors or mistakes that are minimal, they are maximal. In other words, there are things you can believe that put you outside of the historic, faithful church throughout the ages. And so we hold at the center of all of our teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, that that is the, the very center around which everything else is derived gospel issues. And there are things that, that sort of stream out of that. You might think of first level issues as anything that would compromise the gospel. So a view of the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ is absolutely imperative to get the gospel right. You can't be wrong on that and still maintain a faithful gospel. The visible, we talked about it in our catechism today, the visible bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus is vital to understanding a true gospel. And to deviate on that puts you outside of the historic faithful church outside of a scriptural understanding of the gospel. And so on these first level issues, to vary in your theology is to commit heresy. It's, it's to be outside of the truth. And so we want to hold those things very carefully and very close. So in theological triage, those first level issues are gospel issues. And then there are second level doctrines, which are significant. They're important doctrinal matters that really do matter, but they are not fundamental to salvation. They're not linked to the gospel directly. They are crucial to understanding and to functioning in the Christian life and in a Christian church, a local church particularly, uh, but they are not things that are related specifically to the gospel itself. An example here might be in the second level is the mode of baptism. The question of baptism is an important question. Churches and people have to decide what they understand the scriptures to teach about baptism. And there are Bible-believing Christians who differ on how that should function inside the local church. But a church can't hold two positions on baptism at the same time and practice baptism with any significant meaning to what's going on in there. So it's not the gospel, but it matters enough in most cases to actually form separate churches or entire denominations around those convictions. And then there are third level or tertiary issues. And those issues are, are those with which we should be able to cooperate, to fellowship, and still disagree on. Things that we don't see eye to eye on, or maybe we do hold them in common, but we don't always hold them in common. These are things which we can differ on and still fellowship together with glad hearts, encouraging each other toward full maturity in Christ. Those issues are still important. They're not unimportant. There are no doctrinal issues that rank on the unimportant list. None whatsoever. 
But these third level issues are ones that we can differ with each other on and maintain fellowship in the same body. Things like the coming of the Lord, the return, your view of eschatology, like what, what stream of Christian history you fall into on your view of how that will work out. We may differ here in this room. There are lots, actually, I believe, of different views in this room right here. And we should be able to sing with glad hearts, love each other, and say, I don't, I don't think you're right on that. And I love you. And I'm going to see you next week. Because it's that kind of doctrine. It's a third level issue. And there are lots and lots of those issues. And so we, wanna, we want you to understand that we need to have charity in the way that we hold our views. So understanding theological triage will help you to understand how we hold our views at Basswood. There are some that you cannot deviate on. And there are others that, you, that there may be a plethora of views on. Right? So that, that is a first principle. A second guiding principle to the way that we understand our doctrine is this. We're not mad about our doctrine. <laughs> We're not mad about our doctrine. Uh, we, we believe in theological clarity, but we're not angry about it. Uh, that's very important for you to understand about who we are. You see, there are plenty of folks, whenever there's a disagreement, there's a fight, right? So if, if you differ, there's, we're going to have to throw down now. Like, I'm sorry, you differed. We got to get the jacket off. We got to go outside and figure out who's right and beat each other up until somebody says uncle. Uh, they immediately become combative or dismissive or angry. And friends, I just want to tell you that we believe that posture of argument is wrong if it's always malicious. Like there will be times you have to fight and you have to stand. But brothers and sisters, doctrine was actually meant to be something you build your life around, not something you tear down others with. It's the wrong use of doctrine to see that every doctrinal issue is a fight to have with somebody else. Friends, if your definition of doctrine is the opposite, like your list of doctrine is what you disagree with everybody on, you're doing doctrine wrong. If I can just be, urge you to consider, doctrine is meant to build up, to give life, to give hope and joy. And we hold that deeply here. We, we love the truth that we believe. We hold it with glad hearts, with joy in our hearts. A third guiding principle is that truth is not only to be thought, but it is to be felt as well. Now, I know this world is crazy with feeling. I understand. Uh, this world around us wants to tell you that your feelings are truth. And to that, we say, it's a lie. That's a lie. Your feelings are not truth. But it would be a, a, a lie as well to say that you should think a truth without feeling it. That you should have no emotive response to what is said is absolutely contradictory to fully understanding the truth. I would suppose to you, I would put before you, that if you do not feel the truth that you believe, you have not fully believed it yet. It is only when it works its way through your brain into your heart that you fully grasped it. We certainly would, would agree that we don't want our feelings to guide us in terms of what we understand truth to be. But having established what truth is, we want to relish it, savor it, enjoy it, glorify God with it, absolutely delight in it. And those are all feeling words. Every one of those. We are not, as the caricature goes, the frozen chosen. We're not those who, who sort of see ourselves as, well, you know, I got all the boxes checked. So if you pull out my doctrinal sheet, let me show you. I've got these beliefs right here. See, look how good that is, right? I don't care a thing about that, but that's what I believe. Well, I would submit you don't believe those things if you've not yet worshipped because of them. 
You know, I, I, this, is, this, this is a point where I would just give us a little bit of a pastoral encouragement. So I'm going I'm to come around you, somebody who loves you, encourage you in this, this particular aspect. Because I think this is an area we can actually grow in. And in this room, and it may just be me, so just allow this to be something that you're like, yeah, Matt's got this idea. I don't know if he's right on that. But I think it's okay to verbalize how you feel about things. Um, I want to do an experiment with you. And we're going to call this the great amen experiment of 2024. Okay? So I'm going to count to three. And on the count of three, I would like everyone in this room to verbally, out loud, with their mouth and vocal cords, say amen. Or if you're Presbyterian leaning, you can say amen. We'll give you that. But on three, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to count to three, and we're all going to say amen out loud together. Ready? One, two, three. Amen. amen. Nobody died. This was great, right? It turns out we can say that out loud, which is just a Bible way of saying, I agree with what's said. What's said really does resonate with my heart. Thank you, God, that that's true. That's all you're saying when you say the word amen out loud. And I want you to hear me say, I'm not scared of your amens. So if sisters, brothers, if you have something that the Lord really resonates as we come through a text and it just rings true in your heart, I, I would love to hear much more by way of response. In fact, it actually serves me to know when you're savoring what's going on. It serves my heart to know it's not just landing on you like an academic lecture, but that in fact you're going, oh, I'm so thankful that's true. I'm so thankful that's true. So we don't just think our truths at Basswood, we feel them as well. We're not, we're not scared of that reality. And then one final guiding principle is that when we differ on doctrine here, we always remember who we're talking to. When we differ on doctrine, we always remember who we're talking to. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, you're always talking to someone who is made in the image of God. So there's no case in which you have freedom to malign and sin against with your words and beat down another person. Never. When we differ, we remember who we're talking to. We're talking to someone created in the image of God. But second, I think it's good to remember this is maybe a case where maybe one of three things could be going on. One, this could be a person who's working it through right now. They, they, haven't, they haven't arrived at a position, they're kind of working to a position. And we want to be gracious with them as they kind of figure out where the ditches are and where things are. It could also be that you're wrong. <laughs> we just throw that out there. I know that's not something you want to hear me say today, but there are positions that you are holding right now that may need correcting. And that goes for all of us in this room. And so I just put that out there. It could be that they're working it through and not arrived yet. It could be that you're wrong. And you need to hold your position with enough humility to admit that. But third, you may be dealing with someone who wants to stand in contradiction to what the Scripture says. And in that case, you need to confront it and love them back, right? So you need to confront it with truth and then call them to repent of it. So you need to remember who you're talking to. And we, that's important as a guiding principle for how we handle our doctrine. Those four guides, I wanted to throw those out there as the way that we hold our doctrine before we actually dive into all of these important views. And there are so many theological questions that we could be asking about and want answers for. People have big questions about gender, sexuality, marriage, about the, the life of the unborn, the role of the government, and so many other topics today. There are a lot of doctrinal questions that we have. And we are a church with deep 
and serious convictions about all of those things. We believe our positions are drawn straight from the pages of Scripture. We don't answer those questions based on what everybody else thinks or even our own best reasoning. We want to go to the Bible. We start with what it says and then we end where it ends. We, we start and stop with how the Bible handles all those issues. But this morning, I actually want to go underneath the answer to all those hot button questions to the convictions that actually drive how we get our answers. Where our answers come from is something that I want to deal with today. So with those guardrails in place, I want to give you two big words. There are two big terms that we're going to hang the message on today. You can think of what I just did as sermon number one. You can think of my, my uh, first point here that I'm going to make, these two big terms. That's sermon number two. And then my last point is sermon number three, so you know where we are in the sermon. When you start to sweat, don't worry. You'll, you can kind of find your own way around where we are this morning. The two big terms are this. We are a Reformed church, and we are a Baptist church. And I'm going to explain what we mean by both of those, okay? So let's dive right in. Get your pencils warmed up. If you haven't got them turned on, turn them on, and let's get them rolling. What do we mean by what we say with reform? Now, there are many ways that we could explain. There are illustrations that have to to do with the tulip. There are illustrations that have to do with uh, all the doctrines of grace laid out uh, uh, in a positive format. But one helpful tool that we have found repeatedly to sort of be a good framework for understanding what we mean when we say reformed is the five solas of the Reformation. Don't get scared. That word sola just means only. We sang it earlier. Only scripture, only Christ, only grace, only faith, God's glory only, right? That word only is sola, S-O-L-A, sola. And that is, there is, there is a formulation that existed. The doctrines actually existed prior to the Reformation, but they were very concisely and very helpfully summarized in about the 17th century, 16th century uh, by some of the Reformed thinkers and then brought them back to the center of Christian theology. So what do we mean when we say reformed? I'm going to give you five solas and a bonus simper. You ready? So five solas and a simper. There's your, there, there's your uh, kind of hooks to hang on. So the first sola is this, sola scriptura, scripture alone. The Bible alone is the perfect authority for life and for godliness. The, the pages of the Bible, the words of scripture, at Basswood we believe in both the inerrancy, it's not errant, it doesn't make mistakes, in the inerrancy and the sufficiency, it's enough, the sufficiency of Scripture. That means that we hold the Bible is fully and accurately the Word of God. The words we see in our Bible are the words that God means for us to have. But also we believe that the Bible is enough for addressing the situations of life, that it is enough to, to address all matters of faith, morality, and Christian living. And without any need for any extra revelations, the Bible is enough. The Bible itself is self-authenticating. It tells us what it is. It is clear to a rational reader. You can understand it. The Bible is written in such a way that you can understand the basic principles, although you have to have the Spirit illumine those in your heart for you to fully grasp them. It is understandable. It is clear. It is its own interpreter. Scripture interprets Scripture. When we want the first commentary on the Bible is the Bible. So we go to the Bible for explanations, and it is sufficient as the final authority of Christian doctrine. Where do we get that idea from? Well, the Bible itself talks like that. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Theo, God, theopneustos, the breath. It's God's breath. He breathed it out. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6 say, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, 
lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. That tells you where we get all the rest of our doctrines from. What I, the Sola Scriptura thing I just mentioned explains how we arrive at all of our answers to any hot-button question. We start and stop with what the Bible says. We, we, we pull out of the pages of Scripture the actual meaning of the text to apply to any given situation in life. Now, there can be a little bit of confusion around Sola Scriptura, so can I just give you a, a few little things that we don't mean when we say Sola Scriptura? The first is this. We don't believe that the Bible contains all available knowledge, right? So what we're not saying uh, is that the Bible claims to be the, expo- the, the exhaustive ex- uh, repository of everything everyone could ever possibly know. That's not what sola scriptura means. Even the apostle John told us in John chapter 21, verse 25, that there's, there's a lot that's not recorded in scripture that he could have said about what Jesus was doing. The, the pages couldn't even, there, there would be too much uh, to be recorded uh, for what Jesus has done. But what we do have in scripture is what we need to know. Everything that we need to know to be made right with God and everything we need to live lives that please him. So the second thing that Sola Scriptura does not mean is that somehow the church and its teachers, uh, that, that, that uh, discipleship among peers or pastors, that that's now rendered unnecessary. That since we have a Bible, we don't need teachers anymore. The Bible makes it plain that Jesus actually sets up teachers in the church for the express purpose of explaining the Scriptures and leading one another. And he actually calls all of us in the Great Commission to be those who would make disciples as we are going. And so we actually are all called to be teachers of the Bible And I would argue that that includes listening to faithful Christian teachers, even from the past. Uh, And and so books are appropriate to learn from faithful creeds, catechisms, and confessions might fall in that category as well. Um, And then this is is really what I want to clarify. Saying that we believe in sola scriptura does not mean that the Holy Spirit has no ongoing ministry in the life of the believer. Understand me. It does not mean that the Holy Spirit doesn't actually continue to illumine from the Scriptures, uh, illumine truth to us. That The Holy Spirit is living and, and, and is at work in the body of believers, I think is a vital thing for us to understand. The Spirit applies this infallible word and sufficient word to a believer's heart, providing personal conviction, equipping, and direction. And all of that is done as the direct work of the Holy Spirit of God, who is God. So at Basswood, we believe in the primacy of the Word of God. It is, it is front and center in all we do. And that means that we do things like teach through the Bible systematically and expositionally. We will work through scriptures. This morning, Bob read for us from Psalm 118 because we read the Bible without commentary every week. We just stand up and let God's words be enough. Let them have the weight. No explanation as a part of what we do every single week. And we also believe that the Bible settles every disagreement that we've got. So this is the the first and foundational belief to everything that we believe at Basswood. For instance, the Bible tells us that every human being is radically fallen and entirely unable to save themselves. So all mankind is born in a state of sin and misery is how one catechism puts it. And while we're not all as bad as we could be, all of us are completely ruined and have, have rebelled against God. We've chosen our own way instead of God's ways. And we have all become guilty and fallen short of God's glory. You just need to read Romans 1, 2, and 3 to figure that out, right? The Bible will tell you exactly what I just said in those first three chapters of the book of Romans. You have, apart from God's grace, everyone is dead. Ronnie read it in Ephesians 2 when we opened our service. 
There, there's no sick sinners. They're all dead, right? They're, they're all dead. There's no the pre-Christ, pre-conversion. There's nobody who's just out there almost there, but not quite there. You're either dead or you're alive. And the difference is what God does, not what we do. And so that, that understanding, we don't make that up on our own. We didn't just invent that and think, well, that'd be a convenient doctrine to go around and tell people, like, hey, you know what? You're dead in your sins and trespasses. We didn't think that up. The Bible tells us that that is true about everybody. So we proclaim it as true because the Bible holds that doctrine. We don't look for our information about the moral state of humanity from the latest YouTuber who says, you know, we're all basically good. You know, everybody's pretty much a good person. No, that's not true. That's not what the Bible says. And you know it from experience that that is false. So what I, what I mean to say by that is we are not Reformed or Baptist because we like the system or because we think that's the, that's the trendy thing to be. We are both Reformed and Baptistic because we believe that is the right understanding of the words of the Bible itself. So we hold it as convictions that guide all of the rest of our conclusions and convictions. They're all based on what the scripture says. So at Basswood, we are always going to want three things from you whenever there's kind of a disagreement or, or, or need some clarification. If you bring us these three things, it will help us a bunch. A book, a chapter, and a verse. That's what you need to bring for any discussion about doctrine is a book, a chapter, and a verse. And it would be best if it was in context, and it would be even better if it came with a heart of love. So that, that is how we're going to settle all of the discussions we're going to have uh, so that is sola scriptura. The Bible is the rule of this church. Well, the next sola that I want to consider is solus Christus. And all the next three doctrines, you can take them in a variety of orders, but they all relate to the gospel. You could summarize those middle three as just the gospel itself. I'm going to start with Christ. You see, solus Christus means Christ alone. There is no other way of salvation except through Jesus Christ. There's not a Muslim way, there's not a Buddhist way, and there's not a moral way to Jesus. There's not a moral way to Jesus or to, or to God. The only way to God is through Christ himself. You must come through his substitutionary atoning death. There's no other way to be saved. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And listen, no one comes to the Father except through me. It's really plain. Jesus did not allow some other option. Coming to Jesus is not a mountain where we all take our own path up. That's not what it is. You're either coming through Christ's work or you are not coming to God the Father. Period. Without exception. Christ alone. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 says there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. One and only one. The man, Christ Jesus. So he is the only mediator. Christ alone is our way to salvation. In every single age, there arises this temptation uh, to want to find some other way than Jesus to be, brought right, to be made right with God. But because we are broken and sinful, as I just said a minute ago, we can't do that. We have nothing to bring, no way to come. We must have a mediator. Someone must intercede on our behalf. Someone must come for us. But that's not a very popular way to think about how you get to God. Because it starts with the assumption that you're broken and needy. And nobody likes to be told they're broken and needy. But unless you realize that's true about you, you can't come. Apart from that reality, we can't know that what we, what we can't do is bring anything of our own. But listen, the good news is, is that Christ has been provided that we might come and rest in him. It reminds me, the way that we'd rather have our own gospel, there was a, 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 
an author named Richard Niebuhr who wrote a pretty highfalutin book, but he has this one sentence that stands out to me. He describes a modern-day gospel like this. Here's a modern-day gospel. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That's no gospel at all. There's nothing there to hope in at all. Unless our gospel and our lives center on the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus Christ, then we have no hope and our life is empty. Christ alone can save. There is no other way to be saved, friends. No good behavior will get you in. No way of really meaning it will be enough. You must come through Christ. Solus Christus. The next sola is sola gratia, grace alone. We believe that the Bible teaches that salvation is a gift of God's sovereign grace. It's a gift. It's a gift of God's sovereign grace. His unearned favor. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Later in chapter 8, he says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So far, we're great. Everybody wants that on their coffee mug, right? Everybody wants to say, yeah, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Brethren, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you see the unbreakable chain of salvation in there? That he is doing it from beginning to end. It is no work of man at any point that saves a human being. It is God's work alone. So here at Basswood, we are not put off by Bible words like election, predestination, foreknowledge. We don't shy back where the Bible gives us so much to go on. Now, I admit, when you begin to teach the doctrines that are mentioned in Romans chapter 8, you dare to read Romans chapter 9 through 11 out loud in front of other people. It's going to cause a lot of people heartburn. I understand. I understand. There, there, it, there, there is very little that is more offensive to human sensibility than the notion that God is going to save you from beginning to end, and you really, really can't save yourself. That is offensive at the heart of it. In fact, wherever election is taught, men and women make the charge that that doctrine is unjust, it's unfair, it's deterministic, it makes people into mindless minions. People protest that it removes responsibility from humanity. And it takes all meaning out of love and worship. I've got just a couple of responses that I hope will help you as you consider that. Remember, we don't arrive at our doctrine via a system. We, we don't choose our doctrines based on mere systematic thinking. We arrive at our doctrines not because Luther or Calvin brought them. We, we read our Bibles and we confess what it teaches. 
And if we dislike something that the Bible teaches as doctrine, the problem does not lie in the Bible and its doctrine. It lies in my heart and my response to what I've read. It's my fault when I disagree for not seeing the beauty of what God is doing. It's not God's fault for doing it. Second, God's sovereignty in all things does not mean that men are not responsible. Can we be done with this idea that one makes the other incompatible? We feel some urge, some compelling to make these things reconcile when the Bible feels no such urge. It feels no such urge to reconcile these things because they're not in conflict. I love the way Charles Spurgeon laid it out. Time He did this multiple times in his preaching, multiple occasions. He said something like this. He, this is an exact quote, but he said it more than once. If then I find taught in one part of the Bible that everything is foreordained, that's true. And if I find in another scripture that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. And it is only my folly that leads me to imagine that these truths could ever contradict each other. It may be a mystery to us how man's accountability, very real accountability, and God's sovereignty, even in the area of salvation, work. It may be a mystery to us. It may, it may not fit in our minds. We may not be able to figure it out exactly. But I want to submit to you that either we will come to the point that we submit to God's word as the authority on this topic, or we will resist and push back pretty consistently. My recommendation is that you would, you would go to your Bibles and open them up and read them and ask the Lord, Father, I just want to know, how are people saved? Do, do, are we the ones who do it, or do you do it? And then ask, Father, I just want to know, am I responsible before you? <laughs> am I responsible to live a life of holiness before you? Would you show me from your word? If you'll go with an open heart, I really do believe you'll see these are not incompatible truths at all. At Basswood, we believe that God is not just generally sovereign in some big, broad way. We believe he is specifically sovereign in all that occurs, even in salvation. It's a work of God's grace. God saves. God makes alive. He secures. He redeems. He holds us fast. He does it all. God gets all the glory there's no magic prayer that I prayed as a nine-year-old that twisted God's arm, and really it was my prayer that saved me. So I'm going to look back to that prayer and hold on to that prayer as my salvation. That's not how salvation works. Salvation is that God saved me when I was dead in my trespasses and sins. So that I couldn't even have wanted to pray that prayer because I was dead. He had to make me alive to want it to call out and then give me the faith to trust it. And he did all that. So salvation is beautiful. Remember, God's grace is a gift for sinners, and that is wonderful news. No work can earn our peace with God. Without God's grace, men would continue in rebellion against him, unable to see God's truth and love and beauty. So this doctrine, I believe, is a cause for great joy. It is such a cause for joy. We were entirely dead, but God. We, we, were, we were entirely condemned, but God. We were entirely lost, but God. God opened up his word, sola scriptura, gave his son for us, solus Christus, and by grace God brought us to himself, sola gratia. Jesus himself said in John 6, verses 35 through 37, I am the bread of life. Listen to this, friends. Whoever, 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Listen, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What preceded what in that sentence? The giving of the Father or the coming of the people? It was the giving of the Father. But whoever would could come. John 6, Jesus also says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up in the last day. It is good news that hopeless sinners can say, God will save. God will save. And he will do it all. It is not up to me. It's not on if, I'm, if, if I am good enough. It is not on if I mean it with enough fervor. It is all God's doing. So I can hope and trust that he will hold me fast because I didn't save myself. So friends, this is a gospel for great joy. Sola gratia. Hopeless sinners rejoice that God is filled with grace toward repenting sinners. Sola fide. Faith alone. Y'all need to listen faster. There is no work that can gain God's grace. Justification is only through faith in Christ. How do we receive the redemption that Jesus accomplished and that God gives by grace? How is that applied to us? How do we receive it? It is through faith and faith alone. Rather than trusting in ourselves, we put our trust in another. We put our trust in Jesus Christ. But that does not mean that we're trusting faith as faith. We're trusting Christ. It is Christ who saves. Our faith itself is not the, not the salvation. It is the means by which that is applied to us. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, we read when we preached through it. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed, another recurrence of that word, in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not the works of the law. Multiple times in that, in that statement, it's faith that is the means by which that salvation is applied. Romans 10. 9 and 10 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe, that's the faith word, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that's not just a fact of belief, but a trusting in him, then you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. R.C. Sproul's mentor, John Gerstner, if you've ever listened to some of the old Ligonier lectures, you've heard John Gerstner's voice. He has the, the groveliest of grovelly voices. He has that, that voice that you wish you had when somebody really gets up, you get upset at somebody. You can just pull out John Gerstner's voice for just a minute and kind of growl that way. But he said, why is faith the means of justification? Simply this, because it is the action of union with Christ. So faith is the action of union with Christ. Faith is our coming to him, our trusting in him, our resting in him. The moment we are united to him, we are immediately endowed with all that he has secured for us. So no works, no ceremony, no baptism, no goodwill of the heart. We come by grace through faith and faith alone. He saves only through faith. The final sola is this, soli deo gloria, God's glory alone. God alone is worthy of all glory. He is doing everything he is doing for his own glory. And so the reality is that if anything of our salvation comes from outside ourselves, even the tiniest bit, then in the end, that tiny bit should get glory too. But God alone gets glory. Our salvation is entirely of him. It is a free gift given to us by faith. 
by grace through faith, not any merit of our own. So not even the tiniest bit of glory goes to us. It all goes to God in our salvation. And God is not just glorious there. He's glorious in all that he does. Psalm 115, 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Isaiah 48, 11 says, For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how shall my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Friends, your life is to be lived in such a way that God's glory is the main end. One of the common Latin phrases that Christians held on to for years, it's at the bottom of the table talk devotionals that we sometimes hand out. At the very bottom, there's this section of the devotional that says, Coram Deo, before the face of God. We're to live our lives, Coram Deo, before God's eyes at all times, that he would, we would live unhindered before him, that we would live. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 3, 17, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so all of the solace culminate in this notion that our whole lives, from the very words of Scripture all the way through our salvation, are to be lived for the glory of God. And so let that be for all of us and for this church. But remember, I said five solos and a semper. You ready? Here's a semper. Semper reformanda. That was the call after the Reformation, that we will always be reforming. Always reforming. Christians are, by definition, repenters. If you're not a repenter, you are not a Christian. Just really, really plain to you. If you do not repent of sins, you do not turn to Christ. Right? It is all one thing. You must repent of your sins. Turn away from your sins. Repenting is a fundamental aspect of being a Christian. And that's not just at conversion. That goes through our whole life. Whenever we find some area of our life that is out of line with Scripture or with God's will, what we do, we repent. We turn away over and over and over again. We become living repenters as a vocation. Jesus said in Matthew 3, 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7, 10, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. The phrase semper reformanda is one that gives us confidence that our whole lives are going to be marked by self-examination, correction, and growth. We're going to walk with the Spirit over time. Sin will be exposed and we will repent of that sin. So whenever we find that here at this church, we will repent as well as a church. And what that means to you is that you should expect that things should change at a church that believes that you should always be repenting. That from time to time, we will find some area that we were blind to. And we will have to say, we are turning away from that practice. We are, we are wa wanting to walk in faithfulness. And so things will change if we are repenters. So those five solos are a, and a semper are a helpful summary of what we mean when we say that we are a reformed church. We believe the Bible is the final word for us in everything. Salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ and that every area of our life is to be lived for God's glory. And we are committed to that meaning that we will be repenters as, as a habit and as a practice. So we're Reformed. But we're also Baptist. Ready? Here we go. Hang on. So I mentioned those tiers of theological triage. This falls in that second category, I believe, of, uh, for, for uh, my understanding of being Baptist would be a second tier issue. It's not the gospel itself, but it is something that is very important and may cause or require different churches or different denominations because of the convictions that surround these beliefs. Basswood is not formally connected to any specific denomination. We have a lot of friends in a lot of kinds of churches that we love and will support and will hold arms with as we work together. But we are not formally connected in that way. 
So you ought to know that we view these differences as intramural, kind of like you'd play intramural sports. You're not on the team playing the other schools. You're playing all inside your own school, right? So we, we believe this is an in-house discussion among Christians, and so we handle these differences that way. There are many Bible-believing, Jesus-loving people from various denominations and churches who disagree with what I'm about to tell you and would say, I'm the one that's wrong, and we can say it in a loving way right back at you, buddy. I love you, but you're wrong, Right? So we love them, but we really do differ. It's not inconsequential. We really do actually differ. And a key place that we differ as Baptists is on the candidate and the mode of baptism. So I want to lay out some of what we believe here. There are other areas too. There's a lot of areas. We're going to discuss the Lord's table as well. I'll give a little clarification there. But largely this particular area becomes an area of debate. But I don't want to take it as a debate. I want to put forward positively why we hold what we hold. So that may help you as you think through. We are a Baptist church. Let me give you two ordinances that help explain that. We would believe that that baptism is for believers only. That only believers should be baptized. The only biblical candidate for baptism is someone who has themselves turned from their sin and embraced Christ as their only hope. And for that reason, we do not believe that it is it is a biblical practice to baptize infants. We're not mad about them, but we don't think that's a biblical practice. And so we would not hold that. And here's the reasoning why we believe that. So let me give you several reasons. There is not one explicit instance in the entirety of Scripture of the baptism of an infant. It doesn't exist in all of the pages of the Bible. Now, my friends, I went to a Presbyterian seminary to get my doctoral work. So I had a lot of Presbyterians who loved me and who were really, they would say to me, I used to be a Baptist too. Why don't you join us, right? And they would really try hard. And they would always bring to me the, the occasions in Acts where a whole household seems to have come to faith and been baptized. And he would say, well, surely there are babies there. And I would say, well, that would be one inference you could make from that text. But it is not explicitly mentioned anywhere in the Bible. That that is the case, that any infant is baptized in the text of the Bible. Second reason, not only are there not any instances of infant baptism, every New Testament command and instance of baptism is after repentance and belief. Everywhere we find in the Scripture where somebody gets baptized, it is after they believe. So the Bible doesn't show us a positive case of infants being baptized, and it does show us all these positive cases of believers being baptized. So I believe the Bible only gives us one candidate, but there's more than that to it. I think Paul actually explicitly defines baptism as an act done in faith by the individual being baptized, which is not possible for an infant. Paul explicitly defines baptism as an act done through personal faith. He does that in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. He says, Having been buried with him in, baptized, in baptism, in which you, speaking specifically to the people being baptized, in which you were also raised with him through faith, so you have the faith in the powerful working of God who were raised from the dead. In baptism, we are raised up through faith. And that's not the faith of anyone but the person being baptized. That is an individual you being baptized. Also in 1 Peter, Peter gives us a similar argument. We see that baptism is an outward act of an inward reality. It's something that's going on in the heart. 1 Peter 3.21, baptism, which corresponds to this. That's the section where he's talking about the flood of Noah. So baptism sort of corresponds to being, being saved through the flood. He says, he says this, is, this saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal, 
So an individual appeal to God for a good conscience. So Peter points to the reality that baptism comes with an inner appeal, which we believe would not be possible for an infant. So we see every example as being believers. We see no explicit example of a child being baptized. We see the theology around baptism requiring faith to precede it. So we see one candidate for baptism, and that is believers. But as Baptists, we also see one biblical mode. It's not just the candidate, it's the mode. We believe biblical baptism is by immersion only. Where do we get that? We get that from the meaning of the word baptism. The word baptism is baptizo. And pretty much every Greek thesaurus you're going to go to is going to tell you that the word baptizo means to immerse and to plunge into something. It's often used in terms of cleanliness rituals. You don't just sprinkle something to get it clean. You actually put it down in the water and bring it back out. That's the imagery of the word baptizo. The meaning of the word is a strong indicator, I believe, of what the Bible anticipates we will do in response to what we're being called into. Baptizo is immersion. But not only that, there's a picture presented in Scripture multiple times, in multiple texts, of what baptism is supposed to mean to the person who's going through baptism. It's supposed to mean the death, burial, and resurrection, which only immersion communicates. Romans 6, 3 and 4 Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? There's the picture. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God, we too might walk in newness of life. The picture's going down and coming back up. Other passages like Acts 8, 37 and 38, John 3, 23, show us that that is understood as something that is to be pictured, is to picture to us the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which only immersion communicates. So as Baptists, we see in Scripture one candidate and one mode. And though we love our Anglican and Presbyterian brothers and sisters with wide arms and a real, genuine love and believe they are Christians, Uh, We are convicted on this point. And at Basswood, we will only ever practice one mode of of baptism and one candidate for baptism. That is our conviction. So at this point, it may be helpful uh, for us to consider those kinds of things. But let's move on to the Lord's Supper. The other ordinance that the Lord gave us is the Lord's Supper. And as a Reformed Baptist church, we believe that, that only those who have made a credible profession of faith and can examine themselves in keeping with 1 Corinthians 11, only those who made a credible profession of faith and who can examine themselves should participate at the Lord's table. Only those. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 through 30. It follows the section that we quote for you when we do the Lord's Supper. This is that same section, but right afterwards. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. We read that in our catechism today too, if you saw it. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. I believe that means that the the Lord's Supper is only for those who have made a credible profession of faith, who can examine their hearts to know, "Am am I in the Lord? Am I trusting Him? Which means that the the practical outworking of this is the Lord's table is not for unbelievers. It's not for the unconverted children of believers. And it's not for those who are under the discipline of the church. Being under the discipline of the church means there's a church somewhere who says, I don't think he's a Christian. I don't think she knows the Lord. So it's not for those. It is only for those who who have made a credible profession of faith. 
We read in our catechism today, Christ commands all Christians to eat bread and to drink from the cup in thankful remembrance of him and his death. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of the presence of God in our midst, bringing us into communion with God and with one another, feeding and nourishing our souls. It also anticipates the day when we will eat and drink with Christ in his Father's kingdom. There's a lot of doctrine behind all of the things I just said. So let me just real quick mention, there are, there are some good, faithful, historic creeds that you might look at. Things like the 1689 London Baptist Confession. Things uh, like the, the Abstract of Principles, which is a condensed version, uh, but similar. Uh, those are very helpful tools to understand some of these doctrines. But we want you to do all of that with an open Bible. Before we close, I want to give you one kind of encouragement as to why I think all of this matters. Why in the world would we even talk about all these things in such detail? Matt, why so much detail? Well, you may have missed it, but at the end of the year, the dictionaries of the world all always give their word of the year, right? They all come out and say, here's the word of the year. And like, we're supposed to now care about this word more than other words, I guess. But last year, Merriam-Webster, who is like the main English-speaking dictionary that people get all jazzed up about, revealed their word of the year. And it was interesting to me to note what it is in a year where things like chat GPT and AI-generated images Um, And all the political chaos and the news media being in the news all the time and politics being everywhere. There's politically laden international wars going on all over the place that we're supposed to have all these opinions about. And they're being fed to us over and over and over. It was an exhausting and dramatic year. So it's no surprise that at the end of the year when the dictionaries come out and say, here's our word of the year, that Merriam-Webster picked authentic. Authentic, And the reason I don't think that's a, that I find that to be, that just makes sense to me, that they would want the word authentic is because I think people want and long for something real, something true, something they can bank on, something that has definition, something that's not shaking away. It's not AI generated. It's not based on what I feel. It's concrete. And that's why I think it matters what the church you go to believes. That's why I think it's hugely important, not just the church that you go to, but that you know what you believe. That you actually look into your life, open your Bibles, see what doctrines am I holding to? How am I understanding what is true in the world? I think it tells us a lot about the world and about ourselves that that's the word I, that they chose. Well, as we close, I wonder. We, we began this discussion with the Bible as the center of everything Uh, And then God's grace coming only through Jesus. And it would be inappropriate for us to walk past that topic and just ask, have you ever read John 6 and said that whoever could be you? Whoever comes to the Father, whoever the Father gives Jesus, or gives to Jesus, whoever would come can come. And that's anyone in this room. If you're not walking with the Lord, you could today find him as your good Father and taste his grace yourself. And I just wonder, for the church members here who are covenanted with Basswood, are you building your life on solid and definite convictions from the Word of God? Until our life is built on the solid rock of the Lord and His Word, I believe we're going to flounder. We open with this passage. Let me close with it now. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, 
we ask that you would build your church here. We want to be people who know you and who love you. By grace, would you help us to trust your word in everything it says. Father, thank you for giving us your word and your grace to us in Christ. In all this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.